Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience of Smith Weekly, including Robert M., Jared W., Menantum S., and Todd A. James Sykes is on the show today. James is the CEO and president of Baseload Energy, a uranium-focused exploration company with projects in Canada's Athabasca Basin region. The company is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol FIND and also on the US OTC markets under the symbol BSENF. Jim, thanks for coming back on the show. Andrew, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me back. Jim, news and views on recent uranium market developments. I think it's pretty straightforward, but the uranium market's going up and up. We've seen that happening since the I guess the end of 2020, even in 2020, once COVID really hit, uh, we did see some spot price moves there, but the sentiment is changing. It's, you know, I, there are more people coming into favor of nuclear energy. And I think that is definitely being shown amongst all of different governments across the world. Everyone's getting on board to, you know, to bring nuclear energy back into favorable light, especially in terms of meeting uh, meeting CO2 emission standards by 2040, 2050. So these are becoming new realities. Nuclear energy is back in favor. We've still got, oh, as far as the actual uranium market goes, we're still in this position where the demand is there and it, the demand's continuously increasing, but the supply side's still, still not up and running fully yet. You've still got a lot of mine closures and how long are those going to take to come back online? Six months, 18 months? You know, that, that whole supply-demand scenario is just completely out of whack still. And it looks like it's even getting you know, pretty hairier. You've had, what, six, you know, six market-traded companies buying physical uranium on the, uh, on the spot market. And I think that's kind of a sign that you know, it's great. It's a great strategy for them when the uranium price does move back up, that they will definitely see a premium for that, but they're also buying up more supply that is available out there. So this this whole supply over supply market is being dwindled quite rapidly. Cameco, you know, Cameco hasn't come out and announced that they've made any long-term contracts yet. And I think there are a lot of people waiting anxiously to see when they do announce that because again that's one of those questions it's not an if it's a when so that's you know that's definitely something to watch out for is chemical going to start start long-term contracts again which will kick everything into high gear probably you know i'd love to have a crystal ball and say yes it will happen but everything is looking ripe for uranium to bounce back in way 2005 2007 where people were making uh, tons of tons of dollars hand over fist explorers were explorers were doing well the producers were doing extremely well those days are coming back and it is sooner than than hopefully we all think 12 months uh, I, I would say it's you know, could be 12 months to less definitely less than 24 months based on the people that I that I talk with 
It's right around the corner and it's an exciting time to be invested and even working in the uranium and nuclear space. Two items, Sprott taking over UPC. Yeah. Thoughts on that and then I've got one other item for you. That makes sense. I think that was a huge move for Sprott and that also should showcase two investors out there that you've got Sprott Asset Management, probably one of the most well-known uh, you know, fund groups out there and they see the value of taking over UPC. UPC was you know, for the longest time one of the only only places where you could invest into uh, physical uranium as such whereas you know people buy gold that was the only way you could buy uranium. So Sprott sees that as a huge value uh, value added option to their to their portfolio moving forward that should signal to investors hey these guys see it these guys are you know top tier one maybe we should start looking at the same thing maybe we should start looking at uranium as well we saw UEX come out and put out a bid yeah. for JCU and then this morning we have Denison substantially offering higher what's your thoughts on this little bit of M&A action that's starting to occur keeps it, it keeps showing that this is a market that is going to get hot very fast and these are two companies especially UEX you know with with going out to purchase JCU made a lot of sense for them but it also makes a lot of sense for Denison to come back and and bid on it as well but the the thing is these are companies with assets and now it's going to come down to if you want to get investors looking into your company does it make sense to have the most pounds in the ground available and that's basically what i think these companies are doing and yes to me that makes sense that's you know you're gonna you're gonna have a lot of fresh faces in the uranium space. You're gonna have a lot of old investors in the uranium space, and you know, they're all gonna talk. They're all gonna watch these shows. They're all going to uh, to get the idea of who's hot and who's not. And obviously, it's well one of the ways you look for it is who has the most pounds in the ground. So it makes sense on both fronts. If Denison were to get JCU, they'd have full 100% on Wheeler River, which is their flagship property at the moment. If UEX gets JCU, uh, they've got 100% uh, on uh, a couple of their projects, but they also acquire more uh, because then they start to become a part of, of Wheeler as well, and that just adds adds more pounds to their whole portfolio. I think it's I think it's a great move by both of the companies, and you know I, I definitely applaud them both. I like both the companies, and but again, it just it signals that this market is really heating up. There are so many things happening. Yeah, M and A side, it's it's beautiful. I'm I'm excited to be part of Baseload at this point in time when we know that the ball is just about to be kicked and it's not going to be it's not going to be a little pass. It's going to be hoofed pretty hard. Well, let's talk Baseload. Why don't you give us an update here on the capital structure and just include the shares out at this point. Um, you guys have raised capital since we last talked. Talk about the cash on hand and also the current share roster. Yep, cash on hand. We've got about seven million, between six and a half to seven million uh, cash and marketable securities. So very healthy. We are poised for exploration this summer. Uh, the cash will be obviously beneficial for moving everything forward. You know, all of our drilling, all of our geophysics. That's uh, like I said earlier. It's definitely an exciting time to to be in baseload. Currently, we have about fifty million shares outstanding, just a little bit less. We do have one of the lowest uh, amount of shares outstanding per any of our peer companies out there, which is, in my opinion, one of the 
one of the best spots that we can be in for where we are for being a uranium explorer. You know, you're looking for somebody who can make a success with the, you know, less than 50 million shares. If, if you value us at, if we make a discovery and you get valued at uh, something like ISO where there are 250 million uh, market cap, then with our amount of shares that we have would be a $5 company. Makes sense. But we, we've had a great run. Yes, we've did, we've completed two raises last year. Uh, that's for the, for the six, seven million. We've got about 30 million in warrants and options, uh, quite a bit of extra value potentially down the road. Uh, a lot of those warrants are actually still in money. So the first round of financing we did was at 20 cents for uh, roughly 20 cents, 20, 24 cents for flow through and our warrants were at 40 cents. And we did another round where it was basically 40 cents for the flow through and 60 cents for the, uh, for the warrants. So a lot of our, earlier warrants are still in the money, which is absolutely great. And hopefully with some of the success that we do have or can have this summer, we can get the other set of warrants uh, back into the money as well. So that's uh, it's a big push to really, to really get us going pretty hard and pretty aggressively this summer. We did try, we did try to get out and do some winter exploration. Unfortunately, we were unable to do so. So that kind of, uh, kind of weighed heavily on us that we've basically had about six to eight months of inactivity, but that is definitely changing. We do have two airborne geophysical surveys currently on the go on both our catharsis and hook projects. And you know, we're, we're seeing information from that coming daily and it's looking very exciting. I'm, I'm absolutely stoked about these properties. So just a matter of getting out, uh, you know, completing a few more geophysical surveys, and then we will be able to get boots on the ground and work towards drilling later on in the summer. We're planning for drilling somewhere around late July, early August. So about 40% of our company is held by insiders. Uh, I would say about 35%, 36% is held by our parent company, QC Copper and Gold. They provided the vehicle for baseload to be listed publicly. And then we've got about another 35% shares held by retail investors. And these are, you know, these are the guys that, that I personally love. They're, they're our holders. They have a, a long vision for baseload and they've got a lot of faith in, uh, in, the execution of baseload and that we can be successful, uh, you know, given my background. And we've got about another 25% in institutional in institutional investors and other funds out there. So I think we've got a nice, healthy mix, very even mix of investors within the company. And it's spread out uh, quite favorably. Jim, what's the latest on the First Nations Agreement at Shadow? And then also, when do you guys expect to start that drilling campaign? So basically for Shadow, we are back in consultation. We are continuing our consultation and that is going rather well, I must say. The you know, We've kind of changed our approach, but everything that we have done to this point and everything that we plan to do and build upon, uh, we have you know, received some positive comments back from the communities that we're talking with and you know they like this new approach. So that's a very excellent sign that that I like to see for for us getting back to Shadow. As far as time frame goes for Shadow, again, we wanna we wanna make sure this goes right. We wanna make sure that uh, we don't offend anybody. That you know, everybody everybody comes out in this win-win situation. So we are taking more of a uh, patient stand patient stance and just you know 
playing it day by day, week by week, whatever it takes. But the idea is to get back to exploration. And we, you know, we're still missing a few components, but we've decided that maybe we can not do it on ground and maybe we can do airborne surveys to get the, the components that we need to be able to better pick our drill targets. Now we're not, again, because we're, we're, we're being a little bit more uh, cautious with shadow that we're not in any rush to get drilling on shadow. We are, but we aren't. No, it's, it, for us, the, again, the win is having the First Nations, the, the Indigenous communities on our side. That's our big win. Once that is established, then we can focus on the drill aspect with, you know, with their, with their assistance and ideas on what is the best season to explore and what are some of the areas that, uh, you know, that are culturally sensitive. So that's, that's kind of where things are working right now. But I've kind of, in my own mind, I have this, what I'd like to say is a minimum deadline of December. Obviously, we are going to try and push to see if we can get exploring anywhere between August and October with the, with the drills on Shadow. But again, if, if that doesn't happen, just then we'll keep consultation on the go. So, so Shadow, yes, Shadow, we're definitely working for it. One of the things that we have actually just done with Shadow, though, is we've gone back to the airborne survey that we flew last year. And we've asked the company to reprocess the data, trying to pick out, we're trying to use whatever information that we have available to us to our maximum extents in order to uh, to be able to defi better define our drill targets. Now, the, the closer or the more accurate that we can get with drill targeting at this stage will go a long way with working with the indigenous communities, that we can be very specific because you know, without Without the additional geophysics, uh, without doing the the work that we've just done, you know, we, we've got broad areas, and that was one of the thing that that upset the community is that we had to have people going out and doing ground surveys over these these large areas that they they felt it was an intrusive to their traditional lands. So if we can mitigate that, that goes a long way. Again, you're you're talking about taking tens of kilometers of, of ground gravity serving, which is people walking through the bush. It was very simplistic, uh, non-intrusive in our eyes. But if we can remove that component and say, okay, well, you know, we can fly this with airborne. You know, we're, we're not going to be on the lands. It'll be, you know, it takes a week. Boom, done. That can help us narrow everything down into these areas that are going to be not tens of kilometers. For now, you're looking at uh, one kilometer down to 500 meters type of areas. So that's that's what we are trying to achieve for Shadow. Uh, it's it's what we've always always tried to achieve. But again, it's uh, kind of a new way of thinking of how can we how can we get to our targets as quickly as possible you know, without ruffling any feathers. Well, Jim, I wish you best of luck on the community work and continue to encourage you guys to take the steps needed to make sure that they're 100% on your side as you guys continue to advance at Shadow. So let's talk about the Athabasca Basin, you know, outskirts. Maybe you can just talk about this for a moment. This is an interesting question. Talk about where your projects are and the different types in the Athabasca Basin as far as the deposit types and, and why some of those deposits or those showings wouldn't show up on an airborne survey. Oh, many reasons why, <laughs> especially airborne. Airborne's great for picking up boulders. Uh, 
depends on who you talk to. Uh, some people do believe you can you can pick up radon sinks, even uh, radon being you know coming up to the surface. You have to remember with with radiometrics, with any airborne or ground radiometrics, you're looking for these uh, radioactive anomalies at surface. Those type of surveys will only penetrate down to let's say a meter or three feet maximum. That's it. So you're really scouring the surface with those type of surveys. But again, uh, with with radon, you the idea is that radon gases would follow up fracture and fault systems, and then you would see those plumes at surface. But we use radiometrics to be able to find those showings, uh, showings at surface, but also trying to find the boulders that may have come from may have come from any such exposures. But then you also have to worry about glaciation. So it's, you know, it's quite common in northern Saskatchewan. Let's say you did have a deposit that was originally exposed at surface before glaciation, and then all of a sudden you had glaciers come through and just mow everything over. Sometimes you do you do get fortunate where you have the situation that Key Lake had, or uh, PLS, the Triple R discovery, where they had these these boulder trains to follow up on. That doesn't always happen. Sometimes these boulder trains are actually covered by the glacial overburden. So even those won't show up in a radiometric survey. However, uh, that's, oh, that's, where, that's when we use other types of geophysics to, to really pick up on things. But you know, going, into the, going into the sandstone <clears throat> and looking for deposits that way, the, the classic unconformity type of deposits those are, you know, they're great. There are a number of deposits, and I still think there's going to be plenty of Athabasca deposits to be discovered. However, it's the mineability of those. You know, you, you can have a Midwest 50 million pounds at, uh, what is it, 5%, 5% U308 or, or something like that. It's a wonderful deposit, but it's still, it's just a little bit too deep. In the last 10 years, last 10 to 20 years, most of the discoveries that have been made in the Athabasca Basin or Athabasca Basin area have been basement hosted. So the, the idea is that, yes, you know, we, we've had this basin and it was much larger way back when, but nowadays it's, it's obviously been eroded over a number of, over billions of years. So the extent of the basin that we see today is not what it was in the past. And if you need the basin to have your deposits, then where our properties are, we do comfortably believe that our our project areas were all covered by the Athabasca. And I used to, I like to use Arrow as basically an exploration target because even when you consider Arrow, you know, it, it's it's a hundred meters below the uh, below the unconformity. It's two hundred meters below the surface. Radiometric survey, you'd never pick that up. Even if you didn't have the overlying sandstone or the other sediments and you were just right at the basement rocks, you still would not pick up arrow with a radiometric survey because it is still too deep. You're still going down 100 meters into the basement rocks at least to, to start finding your, your mineralization. So what if we've had glaciers remove some of those some of those basement rocks as well. What if they have removed 50 meters or, or 100 meters of those rocks? Then you're that much closer to arrow. That's, that's our strategy. That's our target model that we're looking for. 
and it's it is a little bit different than looking in the Athabasca in the in the sandstones themselves because uh, on the exploration side the sandstone is a wonderful tool to use to explore because it's a blank canvas it's like a painter's canvas there's nothing to it it's just sandstone there's no chemistry to it there's no clays to it it's you know it's geophysically inert so when you do have these systems pop through, when you do have these structurally controlled uranium deposits, where all of a sudden you are now introducing anomalies to the sandstone. So you're introducing elements, you're introducing geochemical elements, you're introducing massive amount of clays, and these will show up in geophysical surveys. So the exploration side is very much easier, whereas in the basement rocks, everything is much tighter. So it's a, it is a little bit trickier, but that's when you understand... Uh, the nature of these systems there are processes that are that definitely help to to discover whether they're sandstone or basement and that's um, our approach obviously is again to make that discovery to find that that arrow type of deposit to find that eagle point type of deposit that is hosted within the basement rocks near surface open pitable but still has the athabasca grades that are typically associated with it. You know, we, we know there are a lot of showings out in the basement rocks and for 100 kilometers outside of the basement edge. So it's this is it's not something that is completely restricted to the Athabasca Basin. It's just a matter of finding the right structures. And that's what I humbly believe for, for baseloads properties. We've got three wonderful properties and I think they've all they're all focused on the right structural plays in the area that would have drawn in fluids had or at least had the ability to draw in the fluids uranium's all that's what uranium's all about it's all about structure it's all about fluids with that too though follow on with you have various outcrops that could be at surface you're doing you know airborne surveys talk about what those components have to do with your unconformity type deposits at depth that you can't identify at surface. So just talk about that and how you move from surface investigation to where you put drill holes to test. Yeah, yeah and that, that all comes down to geophysics. However, again, I, I have to go back to Arrow for this. When we when we when we originally discovered Arrow, we were not hitting the the A2 zone or the A, we were hitting the A3 zone originally, and we were on the outskirts of it. So we were coming across these you know, millimeter to centimeter thick uranium veins, and they weren't high grains. A lot of times we just found these hairline fractures that would be radioactive, and you'd get up to what. 0 0.01, 0 0.05, sometimes 0.1% U308. A lot of people would sit there and scoff at that and say, oh, that's nothing. You can't build a deposit out of that. And they're absolutely right. You can't build a deposit out of things like that with those type of grades. Not in North America anyway, and not at the current price of uranium. But what they are, they're, they're, they're pathfinders. When you're coming across those amount of structures, even as low grade as they were, but the alteration was there too and that the chemistry was right, well, you come across those type of structures, they typically lead to something. It's, it, I have seen barren systems, but I've also seen systems that, that look that to a lot of people would walk away, but they grow into something larger. So we take that knowledge and apply it to our surface. Uh, that's kind of what we're looking for with these radiometric surveys first and foremost. So we're looking for these little fracture zones. We're looking for these little vein zones. 
if we can if we can find them and we can start to to orient them in in real space in 3d geological space then that provides us with the immediate surface area or surface targets to project down at depth and then we take the additional geophysics that that we are flying over these projects so we're, we are flying airborne gravity gravity is always my go-to and additional em surveys and radiometric surveys em surveys you know will help us focus on what i would consider to be the most favorable structures now they're not always you know, all of these deposits are not always associated with em conductors but for the vast majority they are so that's we are mapping out the structures and trying to find alteration, and that's that's what gravity does. Really, gravity gravity will map out your structures too, but it's it's very promising to, or I guess its strength is to really map out alteration systems along those structures. Uh, the deposits that I've worked on and other deposits that I know that have been discovered with gravity, you know, they show up. They show up very easily, whether it's in the sandstone, whether it's in the basement rocks, they show up. So that's that's kind of our focus, and that's how we work things out. We, you know, we're a group of technically strong ge geologists out here uh, for baseload. We've got a great team, guys who have worked on uranium before, and you know, we we know we know what we're looking for. That's kind of what I'm leaning towards this summer is really having all of these pieces just fall in together. As I mentioned, we've got we've got our airborne gravity surveys on the go for for catharsis and hook. I'm seeing that data come in daily. I'm very excited with what we see in that. Now we follow up with additional surveys, so radiometrics and EM, to map out the structures in more detail. And then we get out there boots on the ground. If we start seeing anomalies in these areas and we can identify even if it's these little hairline fractures at surface that are associated with these anomalies well you better believe we're going to be super excited because there is a good possibility that you could be sitting right on an eagle point or an arrow and it's right there so it's yeah it is this is perfect time this is perfect time for baseload to be you know kicking butt and being very active this summer Jim, talk about the Catharsis Project and also Hook. Give us updates there as far as the next steps planned and then also when you guys expect to get out there with some targets identified and actually execute a drill campaign on one of those projects. Catharsis is kind of our push at the moment, well, both Catharsis and Hook. We're hoping to have the airborne gravity done on both of those properties within the next week or two weeks. Then we will digest the information. We will work with the with the airborne contractor to you know just play around with the data trying to uh, trying to really again flesh out as much of information as possible we want to we want to maximize our results as much as possible and we've got a an em survey planned for catharsis also this month uh, hopefully in the next uh, two weeks that we will be getting that one flown and then we're looking for a, a radiometric survey over hook uh, a very, a very, let's say, a high-resolution radiometric survey. We know there are high-grade, uh, high-grade showings in the area, so that's one property that will will definitely benefit from from radiometric surveying. So once uh, and that survey again, it, we're looking at probably late May to early June to get that one going on hook. In the meantime, while that survey is being flown, we are 
planning to get mobilized out onto catharsis following up on the geophysical anomalies that we do identify in early June. So boots on the ground exploration. We've got mapping and prospecting and sampling planned uh, for three weeks starting in June. And then once our other survey is done on hook, by the end of June, we should be able to get out there and just do the same thing out there for about a, a week or two. And we'll, uh, you know, we'll assess our results. Uh, we'll decide if we need to stay out there longer. But then after that, basically, our next plan is for drilling. Uh, it's, it's actually pretty hard to find drill contractors this summer. There's a lot of companies are absolutely busy. Exploration in any commodity seems to be very you know, quite, um, quite active. And so, yeah, but we do have a drill contract, drill contractor lined up for, for 5,000 to 7,500 meters of diamond drilling for between August and October. So the idea is that for diamond drilling, we can get out there, uh, to all three properties. That again, that is our hope to get out to shadow this summer. But if we, if we stick to hook and catharsis, the idea is to drill at least 2,500 meters on each of those properties as a first pass reconnaissance. Obviously, you know, with the group that we have at our back, I'm hoping that we can make a discovery. If there is one to be made, in all honesty, then I'm hoping that our group will be able to pick that off within the first 2,500 meters. And then we just, you know, we go from there. And then it's... Um, Explorations, exploration, diamond drillings, diamond drilling. You can be successful most of the times, the vast majority of times, you're actually not successful. So then, depending on the results, we just go back to the plate and, and rework. But we do plan to be as active as possible and get those diamond drill results this summer. So between, you know, we will have steady news coming out. So between now, or I guess even last week when we announced the, the airborne surveys over these properties, all the way up to potentially October. And then sample results sample results from the ground prospecting, again, we complete that in June, we, you know, we can carry that into July. We would expect the results to be uh, possibly released in August, and then which would coincide with us starting diamond drilling. And then diamond drilling results, uh, they could be released anywhere from October to November if everything works out well. So steady news flow, lots of work, and work that I would consider to be a necessity. Like every, every, everything that we're doing moving this company forward with exploration it's all you know, it's all part of a system that i that i basically work with and it's you know we're, we're moving it effortlessly and effectively jam talk about you know you've got catharsis you've got shadow you've got hook what's the priority lineup at this point is there one project from a prospectivity standpoint that you like more than the other at this point do you like all of them what do you like there do you like them all at this point love them all they're all unique in their own ways. It's like having children. You can't pick your favorite child. Come on. <laughs> you got to – no, you like them all for what they are, for their own uniqueness. Obviously, there are similarities that I do try to really, really highlight when looking for properties. You know, I'm a – I'm a guy who really plays around with the idea of, of fractals in nature. So when I when I pick properties, I zoom out as far as I can and I try to imagine what this looks like working at a small scale. Because I, I've you know I've worked with rocks for the last 15 years. I've worked with drill core for the last 15 years, and you you can pick up the features of a deposit. You can be a kilometer away. You can still see signs of these things. So you start you start seeing these things over and over. 
and then when you apply the whole fractal idea and you look at you look at a provincial scale uh, and trying to pick up geez you know how can i see a kilometer how can i see a deposit that's only going to be a kilometer and you're looking at hundreds of kilometers uh, of data well that's again that's where fractals come in but that's how we have basically picked our properties shadow i really love shadow and our our technical team really loves it as well there's a lot going for it it's just from a structural place it is the right it, it, it looks like it makes sense okay we're not we're not gonna we're not gonna say we've got a deposit there or anything like that but the the targets and the prospectivity of it is just it's magnificent catharsis is the same thing catharsis is a mini shadow in all honesty there are a lot of things going for it and especially more there there's being more highlighted now that we are that we're flying these surveys and we just we keep looking into uh, what's been done around the area but also yeah we keep we keep picking it apart and every time we do so catharsis just keeps looking better and better and then hook hook is in this magical area that seems to be associated with these these high grade high grade showings and high grade uh, deposits such as MacArthur River. There's something going on with that northwest trend that we see, and we you know our uh, the hook property I guess is what it, it covers a significant portion of that northwest feature, but it also covers the strike extension of of certain high grade vein systems that you know have been discovered just just south of the property so we feel that they are trending onto our property and where we you know our, our assessment of the structures in the area should indicate that if there is an area that's favorable for mineralization it's on our hook property just the, the structural setting there makes sense so we really do you know we really feel that each of these properties have the makings of you know, having at least one to multiple deposits on them. They're not tiny properties, and that's kind of one thing I like. I'm, I'm not not a big fan of working on these postage stamp size properties. I like having a little bit more uh, play and freedom. Because you, you can look around the basin. You look at Wheeler River. How many deposits are on Wheeler River? You've got two deposits there. So you can have a, you can have a larger property and have multiple deposits. You've got the Griffin Zone on Wheeler River, which is a basement-hosted deposit, 100 meters down beneath the unconformity. You can have multiples of these things. So that's, you know, we we feel that this is, each of these properties have the makings for for these type of deposits. So, yeah, they're all, they're all unique in their own way, all very beautiful. They've all passed our technical, uh, technical merits and, 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 tests that we need to to assess properties on uh, on well the basis for for picking properties they've all passed everything these are not just they're not just properties that are you know willy-nilly there's a lot of time uh, spent looking at them investing in them uh, like I guess investing time in them just trying to trying to figure out what's actually going on before we stake the property so uh, I'm very happy with what we've done and I'm happy with what we have and just want to see some exploration done on them yeah, Jim, it sounds like you guys have got your plan A through C with these different projects. And my suspicion is, is if you guys find something on one of these projects, that that focus will shift probably to further delineating what you do find. If something goes good at one of these projects and a deposit is found, tell the audience and tell investors that are listening, you know, what they should expect 
beyond that as far as discovery and delineating that? How far will this go beyond that? It's actually a tough question, but let's play this. Let's play the game that everything is as good as we expect it to be, and we make a discovery, and it's going to be you know mineable. Hey, let's let's make it an economic discovery and play with that idea. So we make a discovery on on one of the properties. Obviously, we would delineate it. The ben the it, it would also depend on how deep that discovery is made. But let's assume that it is within 200 meters. So the benefit of that type of discovery is that you're still looking at open pit, but from the exploration side of things, you uh, the the whole exploration and delineation process is expedited, and it actually comes at a uh, much cheaper price tag than other other projects. So you look at Eagle Point again. Eagle Point goes down for a kilometer, as does Arrow. You want to drill you want to drill a kilometer depth from the surface. Well, if you're if we're only going down 200 meters, you're getting five drill holes to one of the kilometers. So our ray in the sun, I guess, our, our target for what we are trying to discover is that, something that would be expedited and delineated as quick as possible. So you make a discovery theoretically, and this is what we do believe, is that we could have a NI43101 delineated deposit within 18 months, depending on how, you know, how aggressive the, the drill stage would actually go. But we could see it all being done in 18 months, and then you can just move it from there uh, within that time frame. The other benefit that we have is none of our projects are associated with any major water bodies or any major lakes or anything like that. So it could be uh, full, you know, full year-round uh, diamond drilling. So there are a lot of benefits of, of exploring things that way. So make a discovery, keep on delineating it, could go quick. But at the, at the same time, again, this goes back to, to my exploration strategy and the reason why we've picked all three of these properties. We do humbly believe that each of these properties has a deposit on them. So we would not ignore the other properties as well for exploration. We would continue uh, doing, you know, doing smaller drill programs on those properties, but the main focus would be on delineating and defining a deposit that could turn baseload into the you know, the sought after investment opportunity for, for people getting into the uranium space. A little bit beyond that, I want to just get your thoughts on permitting in Canada. We've seen that permitting and advancing deposits, really, it could take a decade. How far will you take a deposit and advance it forward if there is not some type of an immediate offer or buyout of the company upon a nice, uh, attractive discovery that would be amenable to majors that would look at it? We would take it as far as we could to the benefit of our shareholders. Obviously, that's who we are working for. That's we want to see our shareholders gain. You know, we've, my colleagues and I, we've worked in the industry for long enough. We've seen enough deposits. We know. Uh, I feel comfortable enough that we know when to call it quits on on trying to delineate something that, you know, that we feel would not have a go, versus delineating something that would have a go. So that's. Yeah, so if nobody comes in for a buyout, that's what we would push towards. Can we make it go on our own? Or, you know, do we need support? Or will it go at all, even if a big guy comes in, or if we try to do it on our own? So those are those are metrics that would have to be decided and, and looked at down the road. But to get to that point, that's, you know, we will... 
we will do our best to make that happen and move everything forward on our own as, as best as possible. Permitting side of things, again, the, the strategy that we are looking for with these basement hosted deposits, and you can go, you can look at the historic uh, open pit type of deposits and, and, and underground mine in the basement rock deposits. You go from discovery to production within six to 12 months. This is, this is historic. So with the average being from discovery into production between uh, basically eight years. So we're, we're kind of working with that type of time frame as well. And that's, you know, if we're, if we're looking for that 200 meter depth, we'll drill for the discovery wherever it's possible. If it's 400 meters down or 500 meters down, we will drill to discover it. That's what we're about. But we do, our main focus is to get that open pit type of discovery. So that's why I throw out that 200 meter depth of drilling. So if we can drill something that looks like it gets open pitted, and I think the I think the the permitting and everything on that side of things does move a little bit quicker. If it's something that's going to be that that could be open pitable, I don't think there would be too many junior or too many majors who would actually shun at that or, or turn that down. I think you would actually really have people intently knocking on on the doors. But that's we have to get to that stage first. Yeah, I think that's a good way to be prepared for maybe in an extended period there where, you know, further delineation is needed and advancement potentially. So far in this market, we haven't gotten to that point where it's become the realization of majors and producers out there, even junior producers, that replenishing the pipeline is important. And right there in Athabasca Basin, for example, Cameco, yep. a company that has two major assets, tier one assets that have a mine life that's uh, at this point best uh, 10 years. And the rest of the non-core assets, not worth talking about at this point, but the question remains is when do the majors and even other junior producers start to look at replenishing their pipeline and building their pipeline at a price that actually makes sense rather than the late stage rush. So it's always interesting to get that thought process and, and also with some of the discoveries that will occur in this market, a number of them likely in Athabasca Basin. You know, we've seen ISO Energy uh, have some success. You know, we're starting to get that. And then also there's companies like, you know, Baseload that are gearing up for potential success in a market that is amenable to really rewarding discovery. Whereas, as you and I've discussed in the past, that uh, bear market rewards of discovery are, are fairly capped, as we've seen. Yeah. And yet, even in bear market conditions and conditions we're seeing now that there is still hesitation from majors and junior producers to do anything on M&A and pipeline building. So while they're depleting themselves or will be depleting themselves if you're on care and maintenance, the picture isn't that pretty. And so the, the trick is, is, is how do you spend that money and acquire mineable, meaningful projects that can actually be permitted, that can be built and can be mined to replenish that pipeline to increase your asset life back to 15, 20 plus years. So that's the big question that has yet to be answered. I'm sure it'll be exciting to get those answers. I wanna, I wanna add something to that actually. Cameco, okay, Cameco for the longest time have been focused within the Athabasca Basin for tens, twenties, twenties of years. They have been focused within the Athabasca Basin. They kind of shunned looking outside of the Athabasca in the basement rocks. That has changed in, I think it was December 2019, or it was or sometime in 2020, maybe March 2020, 
Cameco started staking exploration ground south of Key Lake, actually right between Catharsis and Key Lake, even closer to Catharsis than it is to their to their Key Lake area. To me, this is just speculative. To me, that signals that Cameco are now in a different thought process. That Cameco is looking for these, or at least they realize a lot of issues they have. They've they've had a lot of issues with the MacArthur River. They've had a lot of issues at Cigar Lake, and I think they've they've realized all of this. So I think that they are trying to look for these basement hosted deposits, which you know, a lot of people in this industry in the Athabasca you know clubhouses. A lot of people do have these ideas that yes, basement hosted deposits are you know they're not a unicorn. They do exist and they can exist outside of Athabasca. So I, I'm perceiving this as that is Cameco's viewpoint now is that you can have these deposits. They just have to be on the right trends. They have to be in the right areas. So this is kind of where baseload also fits into that strategy. If we can make a discovery and if Cameco is actually thinking along those along those wavelengths, then we make a discovery, I, I'm almost positive Cameco would be watching us intently, but also could be knocking on the door. They could be very well one of the suitors that come knocking if everything starts looking uh, amenable to, a, a discovery being amenable to moving forward. Jim, let's switch gears for just a moment here as we wrap up. You're still over at uh, Appia Energy from what I understand. What's your plans over there? I've got less than a month left. Uh, by the end of this month, May 31st is my last day with Appia, and then I completely focus on baseload. Most of my focus has been on baseload for the past you know, four to six months, which I've been helping out with Appia to ensure that their, their summer exploration program, which looks like it's going to be absolutely exciting and a lot of uh, money and time invested into it. So, yeah, just, just helping them get moving. But... I'm a, I'm a nuclear bull. I love uranium. I love nuclear energy. I think it's our future, hence why I'm a firm believer in, in baseload and putting my, my strong foot forward in this way. So at this point, the uh, company is sitting at about a 23 million Canadian market cap here. What do you say to potential investors in the audience listening? Why should they get involved now at current price levels? I'd say that basically we can almost consider this our... Uh, not a plateau, but our valley in our share price. I think we've got a lot of upside potential, not just on exploration alone, but again, we're in uranium exploration. Spot price has been showing signs that it will that it will move higher. You know, it, it keeps fluctuating, but in the long run, it is still moving up. So that that in its own, historically, explorers have always gone up with the spot price. So there's upside potential on that alone. But I don't like to rely on that. That's uh, for me. That's not a fair way. That's not fair for our investors. I love to be aggressive. I love to explore. That's what I do. It's like asking a fireman not to go into a burning building to save people. No, they won't. That's you know that's what they do. I explore. That's what I do. I explore for uranium, and I think I do it well, and I think I do it as cost effectively as possible. You know, shareholders looking to get into into the uranium space should look at obviously the producers. Producers are your are your key people. They will be making money, and they can even hand out dividends. Don't, you know, I don't doubt that one bit. But then if you're looking for the explorers, you're looking for the big bangs with the big risk, well, then look in the Athabasca. You know, don't don't look elsewhere in the world. There's a lot of low-grade deposits out there that, you know, make pennies. You want to you find these big things. Cigar Lake is is the world's 
It's the world's highest commodity of, or highest price commodity of any commodities out there, even at these low prices. It is also the world's largest single mine supplier of uranium. So that's the benefit of the Athabasca. You make these discoveries, you've got, you've got nuclear uh, energy feeders. You, you've got things that will that will provide to the supply side. That's what the Athabasca is about. There's a reason why. You know, this is such a highly explored area it's because these deposits are the king of kings. These are the deposits that move forward. So Baseload has the team and the expertise to make these discoveries. I've, I've seen unconformity deposits. I've worked on them. I've worked on basement deposits, uh, discovered them. It's We've got the team to make this all happen, and we've got the properties to make it all happen. We've put a lot of time and effort into making sure that our investors will benefit in the long run. You know, I, I saw what happened with um, Alpha Uranium before they became ALX, and with the whole the whole PLS Boulder Field, and then the initial discovery. You had a you had a company that went from pennies to $13 per share. I want something similar to happen for Baseload. I want our investors to to reap the reap the rewards. I've been with companies that have made billions of dollars for for shareholders. Now this is this is Baseload's turn. You know, I want to actually lead the company that does the same. So this is you know, I, I think we're a nicely aggressive but technically savvy exploration company in the right jurisdiction and the right time. There's no better time to get into uranium than now. Jim, sounds good. Looking forward to the progress here. Best way for the audience to contact you and the company? You can email the company at info at baseload.com or you can even email me myself personally, uh, Jay Sykes, that's J-S-Y-K-E-S, at uranium geologist no s on the end this is uranium geologist is singular.com uh, i always reply to emails definitely the best way to get in touch with me well jim always fun uh thanks for taking the time with us today and we look forward to monitoring progress at the company awesome thank you very much andrew always a pleasure